0: Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaverdam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Kroenke. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. Unfortunately, he was under the weather for this interview, but he will be back. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. And we recognize that whenever Reformation happens things get messy. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's happening in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Monday. We've also created a new Patreon account. You can find it at patreon.com backslash So if you appreciate what we're doing and want to support us financially, you can head on over there, give a donation. Those donations will go toward website hosting, podcast hosting, microphones, and a future Messy Reformation conference. So stay tuned. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part two of our conversation with Dave Bosher.
1: and that all matters, but it's funny because people approach that conversation as if it's a negotiation. Like how much of my favorite kind of music do I need to give up in order for the young people to come back or in order for the (laughs) non-Christians to come back? And I just think where else in your life does that sort of bargaining work? Like, you know, you have an estranged daughter and you go, okay, well, just how much do I have to do to get you to tolerate me? That's not how reconciliation works. That's not how being inviting works. So it's just, um, yeah, it's it's just interesting how uh, we can overdo that conversation because we're trying not to have the one that matters.
0: Yeah, well, and then again, that goes back to the conversation we had at the beginning. We're that conversation, like, how much of the music I love do I have to give up in order for young people to come? Misses the power of the gospel again. It's we're yeah. thinking, oh, it's the music and the style of music they're going to draw people, not not the power of the gospel. And, uh, and actually a lot of young people, I, I mean, I was a youth pastor for 11 years. I've, and uh, our youth group was like 50% unchurched kids. And so we had a lot of evangelistic outreach and we didn't have all the, we did a lot of hymns and stuff and they love hymns. And so it's not even that kids are like, we need to have all the trendy music. They're actually looking for people who care about them. Is it a big
1: hymn state? Like, are the kids these days, like rapping out to great is thy faithfulness (laughs) or something? I, I, I don't know. This could be a Minnesota thing. And they they no. great is thy faithfulness, don't you know, uh, my homie? Like I don't is that <laughs> typical? Because I, no. I haven't seen that youth culture yet.
0: No, well, it, yeah, we had a unique youth culture in in our, okay. our youth group, <laughs> so it was it was unique. But but they were able to appreciate. I mean, obviously, we didn't just do hymns, but we did reintroduce a bunch of hymns on top of that because there's depth there too, right?
1: Oh, for sure, um, for and sure. So,
0: and they, they learned to love them. So even like my kids, so we went from a church that I would say was not super contemporary. The church I was youth pastor at wasn't highly contemporary. It was kind of, you know, they tried to do blended worship or whatever. And then I became pastor at another church, which is more of a church revitalization. And we're trying to kind of mix things up. And it was way more traditional, primarily hymns, piano driven. And uh, my kids, it took a bit for them to get used to that, um, but they've said, man, we actually are really learning to appreciate these hymns and, and the style of music and, and everything. So, um, and I was just talking to my elders about that, saying, okay, we're in this church revitalization situation. We're trying to make our church healthy. Um, and so that's why I haven't even, we haven't even really spent a lot of time focusing on the music because the music is more of the dressing of of the health of a church, really the community and and the discipleship, I think is really the the core of what we need to do to become a healthy church.
1: Well and and frankly, if all those other things are working well, it leads to healthier, you can have healthier, less selfish conversations about all the other things when all the other values and priorities are in line. I mean, I I just, I recently, I'm not a leader. I'm not going to quote this as though I'm a leadership guru. I literally just heard from somebody. I think it's a Peter Drucker quote. I heard this like last week. Somebody said this. I thought it was brilliant that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I, I agree. It doesn't even eat it for lunch. Like your strategy doesn't even make it till lunch. And so if if you have a healthy culture of people who say, you know, this church exists for making and growing disciples of Jesus by the power of the gospel, that's what my church is here for. It's what I'm here for. Um, then when you talk about what your priorities should be for your music, it's a healthier conversation. Um, you know, it's, it's where you start from, not where you end up. And so, um, I mean, if you Amen. could have that very same conversation, but if the motives are, how do I get what I want? And um, how do I, how do I make this comfortable for me? Or um, how do I make this just less embarrassing to this one friend I want to bring? That's not the core conversation. Um, Amen. The conversation has to be what music can we sing that, that both proclaims truth, and also just captures the heart of my congregation in a way that only music can, while also, being, while also being understandable to the people on the outside. I think sometimes in our worship, we actually sin. We don't, we don't think about this, but one of the things the Apostle Paul regulated was speaking in tongues in worship. We're like, oh, that doesn't have anything to do with now. Well, but interestingly enough, he said you have to have a translator around, and the reason he gave that was because if somebody comes in from the outside, it needs to make sense to them. And so um, I th- I think the way you get to worship that is um, that captures the heart of people musically in a way that only music and not just words can and proclaims the truth and is that makes sense at least to outsiders in a way that they walk in and it wouldn't feel one hundred percent foreign. Um, I, I think the only way you get there is by by being in a healthy enough place for the conversation in the first place.
0: But- Amen. And I think what you said, kind of the motive behind these things, is, is key. Uh, I remember. I remember having a conversation with someone at a, at a previous congregation, and our our Sunday school program. We were having a hard time getting volunteers and and all of that. And they said, "We need to have Sunday school because that's what will help draw people into our church." And I said, "Hold on a second," um, because it, you know they they were under them and you know, they had that idea that. You know, people with young children were looking for programs for young children. And so if we had those programs, they would come to our church. And I said, but that's not why we do Sunday school. We, like we do Sunday school to disciple children. That's the goal. Yeah. And if, and if that's attractive to people, great. But if you're doing Sunday school just so that you're going to draw in people from the outside, then you're going to do Sunday school different. And you're going to actually miss the discipleship aspect of it and uh and then it, it causes a mess and so it's the same thing with worship it's the same thing with really everything the, the motive has to be true and connected to the gospel Can
1: i can i use that i want to segue into another that reminds me of another actually as long as we're discussing weaknesses of the crc there's another thing on the ground level there's plenty of things like that we we all know if you're a pastor we feel all complain ad nauseum about Something at the denominational building or something synod. And obviously, I care about those things because I think they can get in the way of what's on the ground. But I want to, one other cultural thing that I think we have going for us, and this is probably in common with a lot of other churches out there, is that there's a great number of, we, <laughs> That Sunday school thing, that strategy that you talked about, of if we have a Sunday school, it's going to bring people to church. My first question, we have a lot of great intentions, great strategy. My question is, has the strategy actually been tested? And then when it doesn't work, do we actually measure that and respond? Because it seems as though um, another thing that we don't like to do is we don't like to focus on or, or look at um, failure. It makes us feel ashamed. And so to be trying something that didn't work to admit that is so painful that oftentimes we go, well, we need to do outreach. Or we need to disciple the youth, or we need to—I uh, don't know—have have godly music. And it becomes, we come up with a strategy, and then uh, we check off that box, and then we never come back and ask, "Yes, but how well is this working?" Um, and so there's a there's a huge number of things where where we'll talk to other churches, and uh, you know they'll they'll say, well, "I'll go like well." So for example, I, I chair uh, church planting and revitalization for classes Thornapple Valley. And so I, sometimes I'll get pulled in for a conversation with a pastor or elders and they'll say, well, we're, you know, we're on a downward trend. Okay. Um, What do you think you're doing about that? Well, we're doing outreach, what are you trying? Uh, This one thing. Okay. Have you done that before? Yeah, we've been doing that. Actually, uh, we were doing that five years ago. Did it work? No. Okay. Um, And then other CRCs, when they want to innovate, they'll get in a circle and they say, yes, but what are the other CRCs doing? And my answer to that is always uh, dying. What are you going to do? Um, so we don't tend to check what's working; we just tend to check what has good intentions um and I think yeah. that in part has to do with we 're really afraid of trying something and having it not work and then having to face people over it and there's a mm-hmm. lot of there's there's a lot of things that we need to you know the message of the gospel does not need to adapt um but the way that we relate to our culture in, in hugely changing times so we're going to have to be adaptive and we're going to have to be willing to fail um a whole bunch of times trying new things. Um, If we're ever going to be able to adapt and be effective um, because people are different. And that's not to say everything has to change and everything's broken. You should burn down the whole church structure and church order and do it, do it just the way you want. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, All I'm saying is we, we just need to check and see is what I'm trying actually doing what I'm really setting out to do in Jesus name.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think we, we get so caught in just doing things a certain way. We even have a hard time even imagining doing anything different. And so I was, I was meeting um, with a group of pastors a while ago, and we were talking about outreach and, and one of them was kind of preparing and they wanted to present a new way of thinking about doing outreach, because of our, uh, the way our culture is changing, right? So they presented all the stats like, all right, really, only 20% of people in the United States are attending church regularly. 20% said they 20% 20% lie about attending church regularly, <laughs> 20% said they would maybe come, you know, if invited, and then like 40% said they would never, ever step foot in the door of a church ever. And, uh, and they said, so, you know, we need to start thinking, we need to stop expecting people to come to us, but we need to go to them, right? And so I was like, okay, I, I'm i digging that. Um, but then the what the ideas that they were giving of us going to them was basically, holding a Bible study, like at a coffee shop. And I'm like, well, if they don't want to go to a Bible study in your church, why would they go to a Bible study at a coffee shop? Because they don't want to have anything to do with you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so we're just taking, we're just taking the same idea and trying to repackage it in a different way and put it. And I was like that, that actually, I haven't found that to be effective evangelism <laughs> actually that like the most effective evangelism like uh, yeah. that is just, just hanging out with non Christians and building relationships with them and talking to them about Jesus. And yes, that's, but not that's a program, scary and unstructured,
1: that's just, though.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's so I'm like, I think we need to be more dramatic with our outreach and just like I've, I've been trying to tell people, I think the most effective evangelism, especially right now in an unchurched culture or a post Christian culture is kind of what they're calling it, is uh, yep. like considering our, our people and ourselves as leaven. That's going to slowly spread through the dough. And so we just got to plant ourselves in non-Christian situations and let the gospel start to spread and work our lives and our and our words, right? We gotta have word and deed yeah. in these places. And uh and I've seen that to be highly effective.
1: Well, and, and I'm curious to know. Um, have you had any any successful attempts in in deploying people on that basis? Because um, One of the things that's difficult to do, if you, a lot of, a lot of pastors, uh, because we're so locked in our bubble, we're not very good at talking to people who don't go to church because we live in the church world. And then the, some of us that are good at having those conversations and intentionally go out and doing it, that's a smaller slice. But in the smaller slice of that is the number of those pastors who could teach anybody else to do that. And it's easy, you know, it's for one thing, I'm not intimidating to talk to somebody about Jesus because I've had hours and hours in a study to really address some of their deepest questions. There's nothing that intimidates me. But when I ask a church person to go do that I say, all right, go talk to your friends about Jesus. They're walking into a minefield of they're like, I I know why I believe this, but I hardly know how to explain it. And I, I, they'll bring up questions I don't understand. And then I'll get defensive and be a jerk. And um, so I guess my, my question to you is, is, do you see that? um, Do you, do you see that people being successfully deployed in that kind of relational ministry? And if so, what does that look like? Cause that's a tough thing to do
0: yeah it it's really tough, and uh no i we're still working on it. I'm seeing some success there, but you're right it's hard to uh because it is kind of just naturally part of me yeah um, and part of who I am, and so I just do it and uh it's one of those it's one of those principles they say that actually the really skilled now I'm not saying I'm a really skilled gifted, but like a really skilled gifted athlete is a terrible coach because everything came naturally to them and they didn't know yeah. they don't really know how to teach someone. Um it's kind of one of those things where I'm trying to learn how to how to teach my church to enter into these conversations because it it fairly comes naturally uh to me. But but trying to give my church freedom too to just like it's not always like presenting the gospel to someone isn't always this intimidating like you are a sinner and you need to repent and turn to Jesus but it it's even just little things like man i you know i, I was down in the dumps and, and i found hope in Christ and he pulled me through this and that that gives sure. a little glimpse to someone of it and so i've been trying to teach my church just that it's not the confrontational um you know for spiritual laws kind of evangelism type of a thing but but just pointing people to Christ over and over again and showing them where your hope is in Christ where your like I'm trusting Christ in the middle of this, and I find tremendous hope in it. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, and you can, can that, too.
1: That's true. If you can have a life worth emulating, and I don't just mean being morally upstanding, but where you, you know, I I can think of a guy. Um, I had the I had the chance to kind of watch him commit his life to Jesus over time, and I wouldn't I wouldn't point to his life right away as morally upstanding, but the guy called me up, didn't really know much about his Bible, and he's like. Dave, is this what it feels like? And I go, what do you, you have to be more specific. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Does it, is it, is it a dull ache or a throbbing? And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, I just, I, I think that God just made me do something. I, um, I was in an Uber with a crack addict and I was driving them. And then I wound up, uh, they, they were talking about being hopeless. And I just mentioned, I started talking about Jesus and then there were words, like, I felt like somebody was making me talk, and I felt like there were words that I, I couldn't have come up with, and I, I remembered stuff that you'd said, and he, is that what it's like? Is that what God does to you? And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, we talked about the Holy Spirit, and he goes, no, not much. I'm like, well, that, that's, that's what that was. That, um, and, and it wasn't that he had a morally upstanding life in every way. People think that to have a life worth emulating means that you have to be perfect. And, you know, the, the guy was still, you know, figuring a lot of stuff out. But what was really cool is that the light, part of his life worth imitating is that he's a, he was a mess just like the rest of us, but he'd found a hope that other people didn't have. Amen. And Amen. he had found um, he had found a lot of re- ways to be at peace with you know when he becomes at peace with God, he becomes at peace with himself. And he's like, yeah, man, I'm really screwed up, and I don't hate myself anymore. You want to know what a crack addict wants to hear? How do I be screwed up and not hate myself anymore? Yeah. Um, and so if you're just the sort of person that can have, you can. Have a compelling life in terms of, okay, you're screwed up, but the good part of your life is actually flowing from Jesus right now. And you're learning how to lean on Him and you're learning how to. Um, people find that really compelling. They probably find it even more compelling than a clean life. So if people can, yeah. uh, you mentioned earlier, I think that, um, I don't know if this is before we were recording or not, you mentioned how from John Piper's church, you had been, uh, there was somebody who brought, about how they bring up the question all the time of, mm-hmm. um, what does that have to do with the gospel or how does the gospel change that? When you get mm-hmm. people thinking in those terms and they're able to talk about what Jesus means to their present circumstances, yeah, I think then they can strike up that conversation and you're right. But it is it is way different than like, hey, here's these, these three spiritual laws or whatever. Uh, let me sales pitch you real quick a sec. Um, that was back at a time when mostly people just needed some clarification. They'd already heard most of the Bible, they were familiar with it, and they just need clarification on grace. Now we're we're really ministering cross-culturally, you're starting further back than that.
0: Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And uh uh it's been interesting too, as I uh well, I've I've talked to people so because so many people think that to have a good witness in the world is to like live perfectly, right? And I say, no, it's actually just living like a Christian, which means you're going to mess up. And when you mess up, you turn to Christ and ask for forgiveness and you repent. And, and you just keep doing that, right? You're going to mess up. And then people see that. They see where your hope is. They see where your comfort is. And, and that's a big deal. And so like, yeah, as a parent, like you were talking about, like, it's a success. You haven't killed your kids yet. You know, I've got, I've got, <laughs> yeah. I've got four kids. I've got one that's going to graduate this year. And another one that's a junior, I haven't killed them yet either. Right? Dude, you and look so to, like
1: awake? Is that, is it, yeah. are you born with it or is it cover girl? Like, yeah. how do you manage to look that good while parenting yeah. at that level?
0: It's a, it's a, it, by the grace of God. Right. I I told, I told teenagers in my youth group, parenting's like being a blind man in a dark cave. You just don't know what you're doing. You're just kind of feeling around, hoping you don't screw up. But, well,
1: I, I think, I think it was the comedian, Christopher Titus that said, he said, when you have your first baby, it's kind of like having your first car. Um, you, you love it. Um, You love having it, but you don't know what you're doing with it. And you're going to put some dings in it like that. that, uh, So, yeah, there's, of course, uh, I think that's why I say, you know, following God morally, nobody's ever going to feel like an upstanding citizen the moment they become a parent, because it exposes everything about you, um, whereby if there's a good God, he would have a problem with me, right? That's yeah, being a parent will show you that.
0: Um, Amen. Yeah. Well, and then what I've told parents is, you know, trying to teach your kids how to walk in fear of the Lord, right, is when you make an idiot out of yourself, you go to your kid and you say, I'm sorry, I made an idiot out of myself. I'm, you know, will you forgive me? And you repent of that. Um, it's not never making a mistake because you're going to make a mistake, but it's when you make a mistake, admit it because you know, you can be forgiven. You're free enough to say, I messed up. Will you forgive me? Now let's move on. And, uh, that's huge. And if you get the gospel, then you know that that's what Christian
1: witness is. Christian witness is not. I tried super hard. And so can you um, Christian witness is, is I'm a mess. God say, God save me. Uh, I think he might have, have something for you too. And then somebody says, Oh, but I, I don't look like you. And be like, Oh no, no, let me tell you, I'm way more screwed up than you. That's what Christian yeah. witness is. I mean. Paul at the beginning, oh, I forget which letter it is. It's either first or second. Timothy is writing this young man and he gets, it's almost like it's completely outside the flow of his letter. It's like, he gets distracted by his, by his, in, in his introduction. He says you know even though I was once a liar a persecutor and a violent man God saw fit to pour out his grace on me in abundance um so that through me his grace might be known now something to that effect now those words for him have baggage even though I was a liar persecutor violent man I mean he remembers the lies that he told to help convict christians falsely he remembers those he said I was a persecutor I mean as he's saying that he remembers standing there with a rock in his hand, as Stephen, this young man, is looking to God, who's going to die because of him. When he said I was a violent man, he remembers blood, and the people he's writing to know it, probably family members of people he might have even killed. Yeah. And so for him to come out and say, it doesn't, it no longer scares me, it gives me joy to tell you about my flaws, because they don't tell me the story of who I am anymore, they tell the story of who Jesus is. Um, if Paul didn't have to stand back and go, well, all of that's dead. So I don't talk about it anymore. Now I show off how good I really am. And now that's why you should come to the cross. I don't think his witness would have been effective. I don't think no non-believers one. and I don't think that pagans would have been excited by that. I think they are more excited by a Pharisee who was like, the most religious person in the world that they had gone, Oh, you've got it together going, Oh, let me tell you all the ways in which I was like, I'm the worst. Like I was a murderer. I'm the worst. Now let me tell you what Jesus can actually do. He can even save a religious jerk. Like me. He may, if he can do that, like he, he definitely can work with you. That's yeah. why can't we just talk like that? Um, anybody Amen. can do that.
0: Anybody can do that. Yeah. Amen. So I want to, we're going to, we're kind of getting to the end of our interview. And so we always end by asking, you know, so we've, we've got, we've talked about the strengths of the CRC and we've talked about some of our concerns about the CRC. Um, What do you think needs to happen um, for us to see some reformation happen in the CRC?
1: Um, I might be a little different than most of my answer to this. I think the answer to that is actually not much. I don't actually think much has to change. Um, let me explain right now. There's a very low and I could be completely off. Like, I don't know everybody in the CRC. I can only comment on my neck of the woods, but, um, one of the discouraging things that this tends to be all people see is there's a very low ebb and enthusiasm among leadership for getting to be a part of the CRC. Um, largely the reason why most churches and pastors affiliate with the CRC and will be reluctant to go is that that's where they've been for years and years of of faithful ministry. It's a heritage thing. You know, you don't see many churches exiting other denominations going, I want to be part of that strong CRC thing. Like you don't see the the RCA, the conservative wing of that is largely going into the ARC and into the kingdom network. Um, They're not coming to the CRC. Um, The reason why a lot of us are still affiliated here is because we believe in a lot of the good things of the CRC, but we don't leave because we have a heritage here. Um, And the the low ebb for that, I will get to where I see this going, but I really think it's important to highlight what I think the problem is. Um, There's only a few practical reasons. Like if you were just starting a church from scratch, you didn't know what the CRC was, and you were just a complete stranger and you're figuring out why should I be part of a denomination? Um, Aside from any theological answers to that question, there are a few um, basic practical things that a denomination provides. And when you, when you name these things, you start to recognize what the problem is and why the enthusiasm in the CRC is so low, but it also shows you just how close we could be to all of that turning around. Um, one of the reasons why you'd be in a denomination would be, um, would be for a, a pool of collective leadership. So one of the reasons we're in the CRC is that when I leave, um, I will have a bunch of lay people trying to find a pastor. They will try to figure out who should lead them. They will not be overly good at asking the right questions. They'll be better than most. My, the elders will be faithful, but let's face it, it's, it, it's going to be tough. And so by being part of a denomination, that puts me in a network of leaders whereby when they go searching for someone credentialed in this particular circle, um, it at least narrows the pool of, of who they could go into to trust. Okay, how's that going right now? Well, <laughs> right now, um, there's a lot of people credentialed in the CRC that I, I wouldn't hire for dog catcher. Um, I mean, uh, when people graduate Calvin seminary, um, there are people with some just absolutely horrifying beliefs and the seminary puts them through oral comps and they do a pretty good job with that, but they're thinking, well, classes will filter them out. Then then it gets to classes and classes goes, well, obviously they put in all this work at the seminary and they, they pass the oral comps. We wouldn't want to be the ones to be the roadblock in the way. Now it might not be true everywhere. Um, but there, there's some stuff out there in the water that like people sign on the dotted line and say yes, I affirm these confessions, then immediately preach against them. So that mm-hmm. advantage is one reason, or that reason for being in a denomination. That's part of the low ebb. That's part of why nobody's really that excited. Here's another reason: um, partnership and common mission together. There are certain things. If you were just a single non-denominational church of you know my church's size, so say like 300-ish members and 200 and something-ish average attendance pre-COVID, and God knows what it is now. Um, if we were that size, we didn't, we weren't in a denomination. If we want to do things like send missionaries or have coordinated efforts to fight things in say poverty in my city, things that are far bigger than what one church can just do. Um, you want to be able to pool your resources, with other churches, but in doing that, you don't want to have, want to be funding things that wind up being pulled off the tracks on the gospel or on the scriptures. And so a denomination provides you a network of people to partner with of similar convictions Where we've all agreed on a set of values and a set of convictions where it's not going to get pulled off the tracks. Well, once again, um, that confidence is low too. And so when people send in money, for one thing, our denominational HQ is incredibly overinflated. Um, Six years ago, I got access to some numbers. We are actually, we had the, of all the Protestant denominations in the United States, we had the highest overhead or uh, denominational dues of anybody. We have 0.4 denominational employees per church. That is massive. Um, and we don't even agree on a lot of the things we do with that. And some of it's not even under our confessions. And then you talk about, you know, you have questions about is World Renew actually spreading the gospel and, and what sort of churches are we planting? I mean, I think the bright spot for conservatives is we still really appreciate Resonate um, yeah. and the, the stuff that they're doing. But there's a lot of other things that it, it, the bureaucracy's gotten beyond us. And it's not that some of these things shouldn't be done. It's that they shouldn't be done the way that they're being done. And they perhaps shouldn't be done at that level, that churches ought to be doing some of these things. And so the partnership aspect of it, where it's like, I'm in a network of churches where we can all work in the same direction, that's divided. Finally, you would be in a denomination for mutual accountability. And I promise this ends with optimism, but let me at least set the stage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, one of the reasons why you'd want to be in a denomination is so that you won't don't have leaders doing enormous harm to their churches because they're mutually accountable. If I wanted, you know, I've been here almost 10 years, and if I wanted, I bet I could railroad my elder board, and I could go to the crowd and go over their heads and get a lot of things done that my elders wouldn't agree with but wouldn't even feel very equipped to fight me on. Why? Because I have the credibility. Now, that's that can feel very advantageous and tempting, but then when you have a leader who's unaccountable, you get things like, Rob Bell over at Mars Hill, where his teaching went completely off the tracks as far as Ascending Church was concerned. But there was no recourse, and it drew into a giant disaster. And that story is there time and time again. I I mean, I know I hear people talking about the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. That's the other Mars Hill with Mark Driscoll. And I don't know all the details of that, so I'm not going to comment on it. But um, it's good to know that I'm in a denomination where I'm accountable to other people where I'm not alone wise. And if, if my church starts running off the rails, there are others who will approach it for a place of wisdom and say, um, this leader is really doing something here that is unbiblical. Now, I know my elders can do that, but it's nice to know that there are other pastors out there. And if we have common problems to solve, it provides a tribe where we can meet and we can, um, we can then work through these issues. So let's say we have an, an entire denomination, hypothetically, that was terrible at evangelism. Uh, I'm sure that's not true, but let's just say hypothetically, it were, it, it's, actually, it's really true. But let's say that we're true. Um, if we're all having that problem, then this provides a tribe where we can all workshop that without fighting about other differences. We'll differ on minor things, but on the majors, we're together. Um, now, in the CRC, there's such division among the tribes where not every church is gospel-centered, which is, to me, that's just the basic. And therefore the solution, the problems they're trying to solve aren't even the same ones that it hampers the communication. Um, And there's no, there really is no mutual accountability among, I mean, I, I, classes are vapor locked by division and they're not, they're not really going after things they need to go after. Um, And I say that because I I want to know that somebody would go after me if I was doing foolish things. And so you wonder why there's no enthusiasm. That's why all the practical things you'd have a denomination for are all compromised. Now, how could that all get better? Well, the reason I say that it's simple is I just want to want you to imagine this: imagine that we were to go to synod this year, and that what were to happen is that we were to put our foot down very seriously and say, "Look, it. The Bible says what it says about human sexuality and about homosexuality. You know, there's six passages across three different genres of literature in two different languages, um, all saying precisely the same thing. If God wanted to tell you that homosexuality and its practice are not good. Um, how would you want him to word it to you? Would you want him to use the word homosexuality? He does. Would you want him to paint you a, tell you a story about how wrong it is? He does. Would you want him to use the phrase of men having sex with men? He does. What wording in Greek, English, or Hebrew would you accept? And if the answer to that is, I don't know, then the problem is not with the Bible, it's with you. If we were willing to do that, I want you to imagine what happens the following year. Yes, it's a big fight. But if we actually said to a group of people, look, if you're not willing to stand under the word of God, we would like you to reaffiliate somewhere else because you're a minority in this denomination and you are not entitled to three quarters of a billion dollars in assets that have been put forth by faithful people for faithful ministry. It's not yours and we're not giving it to you. For one thing, yeah, there'd be a lot of blood on the ground and it would stink. And frankly, there are friends I have on the other side of that aisle who would feel very hurt. But what would happen next is that the ground would be set for some actual healthy conversation. At a classist level, you'd no longer be wondering if you have somebody over your shoulder who is about to bring theologically liberal solutions to bear on practical problems. You'd find a tribe where no longer are certain voices who actually just want to talk about the Bible, feel like they can't even put their voice out, can't even raise their head on the pastor of the Christian Reformed Church Facebook network, which used to be a great problem-solving place. And now, Feels like, a, feels like, pardon me, but a tiny communist country where we're all just trying not to say the wrong thing. Yep. When the quality of that conversation gets better, then we can start actually solving our problems about, I mean, what if that happened? And then the very next thing we do the following year, we say, all right, uh, penal substitutionary atonement, or the, that is the idea that Jesus died for my sins is the center of the gospel, period. Let's all agree on that. Imagine how clear the air is all of a sudden to start doing things like now answering questions. But okay, now that we're in agreement on homosexuality, how do we actually start ministering to people who have that problem? Because the fact is, we're not very good at it, and and we need to get better. Right now, we can't even talk about that without getting into a fight about basic things. A year from now, we could. What happens then if you can start clarifying? Okay, we are all gospel centered. What are our other biggest problems? Well, we have a discipleship problem. We have we have some ecclesiastical problems in how we're structured. The way that we do synod doesn't make any sense. Our deacons in and altogether too many meetings for people who are supposedly servants. Um, all those things become addressable when the obvious big division when that fight gets taken taken out of the equation. And I, I think it's that one simple thing could make a lot of other really good things possible if we are willing to have that kind of integrity. And I think that once again, uh, this would get me in a little hot water with some friends, but uh, guys, I love you, but. I think at that point, we can start having serious conversations about what part of our denominational ministries needs to stay and what things the churches on the ground need to do. And we can stop having pastors with the illusion that if I look to the right swivel chair in denominational HQ, that they will descend from on high and give me the solutions to my problems. That's not how it works. and you could have a denominational HQ that's lean mean and is along with it with the church's visions that they could actually partner without feeling like they're a thousand miles away from this place in every way. I mean, doesn't that sound like a future you want to live in? Amen. Cuz yeah. I don't think we're that I don't think we're that far from that. I think the first domino falls and I think momentum picks up and there are a lot of people hungry for exactly what
0: I just described. Amen. Yeah, that's I think that's what people are wanting and 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 rather than seeing the beauty on the other side of the fight, everybody's just seeing the fight and, and really worried about the fight. And But if you can actually see what the beauty on the other side of it and, and the way that the gospel can go forward and the way that disciples can be grown, yeah. um, if you can see that on the other side, then now we can enter into the fight. And, and yeah, I, I think this next synod is going to be terrible. It's going to not be fun to be a delegate at but it's a battle that needs to be fought and things need to get done and we need to take a stand well, and to go uh, back
1: to pardon to, to go back to your analogy we were talking about worship right how do you get to good worship at your church that works you have quality conversations with the right motives right that's really what it yeah. comes down to um what if in our denomination we could get back to quality conversations with the right motives we're all on the same page at least on the big things would there be jerks in the conversation yes would that be me sometimes Probably. Uh, But but like, how how many other wonderful ways could that work itself out in if we could just reach that place together? I get excited about that. Amen.
0: Me too. The problem is not
1: the problems. The problem is the conversation. It's not a good one right now, but it can be.
0: Amen. So what's your final words? We got pastors and uh, lay leaders who are listening to this podcast every week. What are your final words for them uh, looking at the future of the CRC? Hmm. Whether
1: or not what you're doing right now is succeeding um your savior is watching. And you know whether you're in the colosseum shutting the mouths of lions and doing miracles right now or whether you're getting chewed on like a chew toy um your savior treasures being with you. And every bit that you'll sacrifice and if you have great trappings of that and you get to see big wins um, praise God. But if you're not seeing that right now, um, I want you to know that, that his smile is immense and you might not be able to see it right now, but he really, really, really is enough. And, um, keep fighting for him. Keep being faithful. Keep, keep on with your own walk with Jesus and recognize that, that, um, when you sacrifice yourself and the work you've done, regardless of what's coming out of it, um, it is very pleasing to him. And I know that we Calvinists have a hard time saying that we please God, but in Christ you actually do. Uh, once your sins are covered over and you're giving yourself to Jesus, um, He loves it. He cheers. And he never stops cheering. Um, so keep at it. Be be of good courage, and uh, do it for God, because He's the only one that is. Uh, he's the only one that's worth it anyway.
0: That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for our conversation with Ed Gerber. Until then, don't forget this is Christ Church. And he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season. And keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.